We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-host this week, as usual, is Neil the Bullet Bradley. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Thank uh, you, Joe. That's just your new name. I just made it up right there. The Bullet. Yes. Uh, I'll figure out why that's your new name later. Joe's but, getting a dig in. I'm a slow coach. That's for now. We will uh, just go with it. Anyway, um... Yes. This week, we are going to be talking about, well, the Second World War again, you know, because it's kind of, not just the Second World War, but um, it's, we're obviously at the, that point in the year when it's the anniversary of, you know, Armistice Day, the defeat of Nazi Germany by the Glorious Allies in 1945, and, um, it's maybe a big year this year because it's the 70th anniversary. You know, people like round numbers. 69 isn't so cool, but 70 is really cool. So <laughs> let's do an extra special event about yeah, this year. Yeah, it's 70, you know. And, you know, uh, and we're going to have two shows on it because of 70. Yeah, exactly. It's very important. It's more important because it's 70, 70 years old since, the, like I said, the glorious defeat of um, the evil Nazis by the... Oh, so benevolent. Good and glorious. Glorious allies. Allied, allied powers. With a little help from Russia. I mean, I think they, you know, they helped out a bit, Russia, in the defeat of the Nazis. At least that's what I read in the textbooks. Yeah, they're mentioned there somewhere. They may have. Uh, somewhere may have in the East. A, they may have sent a few care packages or something. Yes. Um, of course, we just uh, were being... Uh, a little bit facetious there, obviously, because the truth of the matter is that increasingly people are recognizing these days is that uh, Russia, if you care about the Second World War, then you should care about the fact that uh, Russia should care about the truth of the Second World War. And uh, one of the major truths that has been hidden about the Second World War is that Russia more or less won the Second World War. Um, but, you know, to be fair, I suppose, although it's not fair, every country... Uh, promotes its own kind of version of history, <clears throat> particularly in terms of major events like uh, wars, etc. So in the UK, for example, you get a very UK-centric version of the war, you know, focused on the Battle of Britain and the bombing of London and um, that kind of thing, and D-Day, obviously. And the Americans just focus mainly on D-Day when they just happen to arrive at the party, more or less, and say, hey, we won! And um, We're number one. Yeah. Uh, just to put it in perspective for you, to give people an idea of what we're talking about here, during the Second World War, and Russia only joined the Second World War in 1941, <clears throat> effectively. So in theory, since 1939, for those six years until 1945, um, you know, the, the Brits and the French were involved uh, in the Second World War, and the, and the U.S. was also, also coming in a little later, but officially, um, Russia only joined in, in 1941, but 
total there's a total number of U, uh, U.S. and British dead for the Second World War, and it's I think it's less than one million. Nine hundred thousand. It's about nine hundred thousand. Whereas Russian dead is conservatively estimated to be twenty six million. So and probably more. So just in terms of this the suffering and the sacrifice made, the level, the amount, the extent of the sacrifice made, you know, R- Russia stands head and shoulders above everybody else that was involved uh, in this war, and that include in this, war, in this Second World War, and that includes you know Asian countries, etc. Um, well, just the second biggest number in terms of deaths was China. Chinese, yeah, which you hear nothing about, about 20, basically. You know, it goes back a little earlier. Um, but encompasses what is known as the Second World War, and it was about 20 million dead. Yeah. And that was the Japanese, yeah. And so when you see, well, we'll get to it in a minute, when you see today the Russian-Chinese commemoration of this, that's largely a Russian affair, but they made a point of having the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, as guest of honor in Moscow, yeah, there's politicking going on there relevant to today's standoff, if you like, Russia-China and the West. Right, but it makes but sense. But it's one based on an objective assessment. Historical fact or historical truth, because uh, if anybody watched the uh, celebrations yesterday morning, more or less our time, in um, in Moscow, the commemoration of the, as they call it, the, the Great Patriotic War, which was part of the Second World War, but they called the Russians called it the Great Patriotic War because Russia was invaded. Remember, uh, it had, if anybody had a reason to actually fight in that war, it was uh, Russia. Um, and this is, you know, comparatively with the British or the Americans who were not invaded, but who launched a war anyway. Uh, the Russians were invaded in 1941 by the Nazis, and. Um, they called it the Great Patriotic War for the Fatherland or whatever. It was a defensive war as, they, as far as they, they were concerned. And um, like we just said, they lost. They bore the brunt of the attack. They lost by far the most people, civilians, mostly civilians, and the Chinese as well. And so yesterday when you saw in the celebration uh, of the victory uh, in Moscow yesterday with uh, thousands of troops and different military vehicles, etc., and Putin was there with... Uh, the Chinese uh, premier, and those two people are the people are representatives today of the two countries who sacrificed the most and lost the most in the Second World War, and yet every single glorious leader from uh, Western countries, Western European and, and the US, <clears throat> did not appear. They boycotted it. They shunned it. Well, you know, maybe they don't deserve to be there. Exactly. Hot potato. They, yeah. Uh, I mean, Putin was magnanimous enough to include in this short speech, thanks to our allies, the US and the UK and France. But, I mean, he didn't need to say that. Um, a brief look at what actually happened, kind of an overview of a timeline of World War Two. Stalin was pulling his hair out trying to get 
those three countries to open a second front in the West. They did it at the end, towards the end, when it was clear as day that the Red Army was about to roll through Eastern Europe mm -hmm. after victories in Poland. Um, so it's very dubious. It's very, the well, difference between, I mean, we can all, at least a lot of people take the basic message that war is terrible. It should never happen. Never again, right? That's the motto of Second World War. I think it was of the first two, but anyway, of the Second World War, never again. We don't want to go there. That's good if most people take home that simple message. But without understanding the context of choices for different countries involved in it, and, and what I'm trying to realize, trying to figure out what your country's role is today, you, you don't have the whole picture. Mm. R Russia was rolled over its entire eastern front from the Arctic to the Black Sea. It didn't have a choice. It, the Nazi divisions were actually, you know, rolling over the country. Yep. That's very different to Britain, which had this kind of relatively small skirmish talks up to the Battle of Britain. Mm -hmm. You've got to ask yourself why. I mean, there there is circumstantial evidence. Some of some of it supposedly recorded um, uh, statements made by Hitler himself to Mussolini at the time, to the Vichy government he set up in France when he quickly rolled through France. There are statements from Hitler and other senior German um, officers to the effect that. Oh, well, we've no intention of uh, crossing the channel to invade Britain. Mm -hmm. That they were led to believe that a quick pass to the west of Europe uh, would leave Western Europe under German management with the backing of the British Empire in particular, yeah, but also to, the Americans. They would come to see, they would see the light. And, they would see the light. And they were all one... Uh, Aryan kind of yeah, we're all, we're all brothers, and right. the, the Germans looked up to, and certainly Hitler had yeah. uh, notions that um, whatever he wanted in Europe for Germany, he didn't intend to intrude on the global affairs no. of the big powers no, of the time, and who are still the big powers today. He was looking to strike a deal with the British, you know, um, and with their, and by implication, their friends in the USA, you know. Um, we have Kent on the line here, so I'm gonna, it's a bit early in the show, but I'm going to go ahead and uh, uh, say hi to Kent. Hi, Kent. Yeah, hi, yeah just, I just have a real quick comment, because just before you came on, I was listening to the RT, they call it Sputnik now, Sputnik Radio, and mm. they are, um, they're putting the Chinese, I guess being very diplomatic to the Allies, they put the Chinese death toll at 35 million, even more than the Russians, and they and they, they, you know, and they, they described the Chinese as not having any major victorious battles or, you know, like Stalingrad or anything, but that their role was to, uh, to keep the Japanese from going north into Russia and stuff. And so they, they really put, boosted the Chinese role, you know. They said it was 35 million, so that's what, okay. that's what Sputnik thinks of. So you can probably catch out if you get Sputnik where you're at. You can probably listen to, you know, they have, yeah. they'll have shows on it now and they repeat it quite frequently. So I just want to let you know that. All right. All right thanks. That's interesting. Thanks, Kent. Thanks. Okay, thirty-five. Well, it could be. It could be. Uh, yeah. I don't know enough about it. I don't know how much is is known or there to be discovered about um, the true the true Chinese extent of 
of course, in, in a way, it's, it was a different front. It was a different army. It was the Japanese invading them. Right. And but you've got to wonder. I mean, it was, 19, <clears throat> it was 1936, 37 when, when it kicked off between the Japanese and the Chinese. Yeah. Uh, the Japanese began to start to invade and basically were, you know, they were starting to assert themselves. Like we, I think we discussed this in the previous show where um, the Japanese had learned from um, effectively and were encouraged by the British uh, and had over the course of the beginning of the 20th century had had really started to <clears throat> um, see themselves as, as a potential new empire in Asia with, uh, like I said, the support of that in the early part of the 20th century of the British because the British wanted um, to keep Russia um, in check in, in, in Asia and to consolidate British power there. And they saw the Japanese, it was a good idea to have the Japanese kind of armed up and the Japanese took that took that a bit far, basically, as far as the British were concerned, I suppose, uh, during the Second World War, where they started to invade uh, invade China and, and assert themselves in a bigger, wider area. And that was just before the Second World War, and it continued then on into the Second World War. Um, but, um, yeah, the thing about the whole mythos about the Second World War that you learn in the, in, in, in the West, in, in Western Europe, uh, the, the lie that, that, isn't, that is propagated and that people don't real, realize is a lie is that there's no real love loss between any of these so-called allies you know the British and the French I mean the British had been engaged in warmongering for hundreds of years with uh, these so-called allies in the Second World War with France and with Russia um, so uh, I mean anybody who thinks I mean this this naive idea of like we're all in this together and we're fighting the good fight and we're all gonna like you know basically uh, France, uh, the Brit- British, French, and Russians were all uh, in it together, type thing, and we're all hermanos, and we're going to beat the evil Nazis and their Axis power friends and save the world and keep it safe for democracy and all this crap is nonsense. You know, mm. there were very clear uh, other uh, agendas being pushed behind that, and it was each man for himself ultimately. And the biggest player in that was, or the smartest one, I suppose, as it turned out, was the U.S. You know who uh, acted very cowardly, uh, effectively, during the Second World War and during the First World War. Um, Because they didn't really play a significant role, what they did was, well, you could say they helped a lot in the Second World War and in the First World War by um, providing a lot of armaments, a lot of um, bombers and, you know, supplies of every kind of nature, every every type for a military uh, campaign for war. They supplied that to the British and the French and, and others, but then and also supplied somewhat to the Germans. But um, I mean, that's not—you could say that's a, a positive thing—and they were helping out, but they were doing it for very selfish reasons, you know. Because at the end of the Second World War, uh, you know, a large part of Europe and Western Europe and Russia obviously were were almost uninhabitable. They were completely destroyed. You know, you have 65 plus million people dead and swathes of the country destroyed. But the U.S. was uh, pristine, you know, and not only were they pristine, but they had every, many of the major, most of the major European powers uh, in, in indebted to them, massively indebted to them, as we were saying in the previous show, many of them still paying off their Second World War debts to the U.S. today. So that's not exactly a very... Uh, it's not an altruistic part they played, let's say. And certainly, uh, I think it's fair enough to call it somewhat cowardly because they didn't really um, commit themselves to it, didn't commit large numbers of troops at a time 
when it was needed, like you were just saying, Neil, uh, when Russia was asking for it, uh, they waited until, and I mean, yeah. this can be summed up kind of thing. This is, at the time he was Senator Harry Truman and soon then to be President Truman. Uh, it's a pretty, fairly famous quote. I don't know if anybody, if most people know it or not, but it's, uh, he said um, in the Senate, uh, in his reaction to the news that Germany and Russia were at war, he said, if we see that Germany is winning, we ought to help Russia. And if Russia is winning, we ought to help Germany. And that way, let them kill as many po- as possible. Although, I don't want to see Hitler victorious under any circumstances. So that's kind of duplicitous. You know, that's the way these people look at this. I mean, people yeah. in America and Western Europe all see this as this kind of, you know, glorious, patriotic, you know, fight for good against evil and stuff. And you read something like that from a guy who's soon to be the president of the U.S., even though he was even though he was a pencil pusher and an idiot, he was expressing the prevailing sentiment in the Senate and in the U.S. government at the time in 1941 that, yeah, let's just let's just back whoever's winning. Yeah. How does that 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 flies in the face of the narrative that has come down to us today of you know this fight, resolute fight against the evils of Nazism? Yeah. But it's horseshit, you know. Yeah, yeah. It was then. Um, that's one that's one statement. It's hard to find. You're not going to find, in fact, a clear line of force. In other words, an explicitly thought out or stated conspiracy as regards to starting the war and which of the two sides, let's say, between Nazism and Soviet communism, they support it. Because on the one hand, you get statements like that, where Truman's bottom line is, well, the worst of the two outcomes would be Hitler's victory. There were others then, particularly from the Milner Roundtable Group, the elite in London, who had the opposite side of it. Well, let's encourage Hitler to do what he needs to do to go east. Yeah. So they were like, above all else, we well, don't want communism. Well, of course, we'd rather have Hitler. Anti-communism was was uh, an anti-communist sentiment was really, you know, it was uh, mainstream in the U.S. at the time. I mean, it, it, during the early forties. Uh, the U.S. government, the FBI, or not the FBI, but the U.S. Security Service were arresting socialist groups uh, for effectively for thought thought crime. It's kind of like today and the, the various um, Patriot Acts and stuff that that have passed. They were at that time they were going around arresting people. 1940s. When are you talking about? In 19, I think after the war. No, no, just before. Before the U.S. got yeah. involved, but it's it's an example of the sentiment at the time okay. that there was that they were arresting socialist kind of. Uh, organizers and agitators who they were saying were basically communists and were against the U.S., potential U.S. involvement in the war, and they were because they were communist kind of uh, revolutionaries, you know, and, and communists at that time uh, and for, for quite a long time, since the Bolshevik Revolution, had been seen as a, a potential threat to uh, to the established order in the U.S. and had been touted as an established threat to the, to the U.S., uh, the established order in the U.S. and also in in Western Europe, you know. So I mean, the idea that, uh, but at the same time, Russia, uh, the U.S. is about to join the war on Russia's side, you know. Uh, at at the same time, you know what I mean. So uh, it's just another example of the fact that there's no love loss between any of them here. That there's no loyalties on either side. They're simply in it to gain as much as they can, no matter who wins. And there's you have different opinions about, you know, half of the Senate might think. Hitler's not, not such a not, not such a bad guy. We should go with him, and ha- the other half want to support the Russians, but not so far. You know, only support them to get rid of Hitler, and then and then ditch them and call them evil commies and pull an iron curtain across the world, and you know, yeah. launch the Cold War. So it's a bunch of they're a bunch of duplicitous scumbags. 
totally, totally. Uh, thinking here of Churchill, it was he who gave the speech when he visited the U.S. in 1946, goes to Truman's hometown and gave that famous speech about the Iron Curtain that's fallen across Europe. The Iron Curtain, which he discussed with Stalin yeah. about who would control which spheres of Eastern Europe. Well, of course, they were. he was able to, him, uh, Churchill, as a representative of these victorious allies, were able to set those terms. I mean, they were able to, I mean, Stalin may have gone along with it, but certainly, as we discussed in the last show as well, um, uh, the Soviet Union got the crappy end of the stick uh, in terms of that division of the world, so-called division of the world that Stalin agreed to, you know. Um, but there's not, there's a, you're just talking about um, smoking gun evidence of, uh, you know, conscious duplicity in terms of um, organizing the war and what the aims of it were. Yeah. I mean, if you read you read the text and you read the history of the war and you can see what the aims were and you can see what we've just been saying is that these people are just uh, doing what they've always done, which is that they're in it for themselves and how much they can get for themselves. And they will sell their granny, basically, you know, for a few bucks. You know, that's the kind of people they are. Um, this is from a book. It's a pretty good book. It's called, actually, it's called Human Smoke, uh, The Beginnings of World War Two and the End of Civilization by Nicholson Baker. And it's just basically a collection it's quite a long book but it's not there's not a lot of um text in it because each page is simply more, more or less each page is a quote or a from most of it from um you know newspapers or historical documents at the time or uh or him just summing up uh, quoting statements made by politicians and one page he says um roosevelt said in a speech that the united states had been attacked this was referring to Pearl Harbor. Uh, he said there had been another U-boat incident. Eleven Navy men had died in the USS Kearney when a torpedo hit its boiler room uh, as it escorted a convoy of merchant ships, blah, blah, blah. He said, we have wished to avoid shooting, this is Roosevelt, but the shooting has started and history has recorded who fired the first shot. He then said, Hitler often claimed that we had no designs, that he had no designs on the Americas. But Roosevelt had evidence to the country. Roosevelt says, I have in my possession a secret map made in Germany by Hitler's government. Apparently the map showed existing boundaries obliterated. The Panama Canal absorbed and Latin American countries turned into vassal states of Germany. This is Roosevelt again says, this map makes clear the Nazi design not only against South America, but against the United States itself. But he did not show the map to anyone. It turned out the map was a British forgery. Um, it was actually it's a map showing routes in South America flown by American airplanes with notations in German describing the distribution of aviation fuel. And it was a British forgery given directly to right. Americans with their knowledge yeah. that it was a forgery. And Roosevelt used it and said, yeah. so this is... The British had to get the Americans in. Right, but this 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 shows, I mean, because I they, don't for a second believe yeah. that the Americans believe that. Because Roosevelt was, as most, most presidents, is a puppet and just a spokesperson. The people who gave him that and said, yeah, we'll go with this, knew very well. The people in the U.S. knew very well that was a forgery. Yeah. They were probably told that it was a forgery by the British and said, here, this will be useful. Tell this to the American people and that'll get you into the war because we all want to get into the war. We want to, you want us in the war, we want us, we want in the war, you know. So, um, this, this is, but it a, reminds me yeah. of, I mean, today, 
they're talking about ISIS in Mexico and now ISIS sails in, you know, uh, around the US and, and they're upping security across different FBI locations and stuff across across the US. And it's exactly the same thing. I mean, it's just making shit up yeah, to keep the people alarmed and agitated because when people are alarmed and agitated, they can't think. They can't think. They don't question anything they've been told. And they just, you know, it reinforces their, their, their mostly completely wrong understandings that people have about the world and the way the world works. And it prevents them from being able to absorb any new information that would contradict their beliefs. And that's why they keep keep this war you know, it's, it, these days it's low-level war. You don't have to actually have a world war. You can just, as we've talked about many times, create a phony, you know, kind of a phony jihadi Islamic terrorist organization and just have them pop their heads up now and again, and that's enough, you know. Yeah, uh, this is, of all the things that people do make revisions in history of when it comes to Hitler's intentions. This is actually one of them that was pulled out of. It's, it's 1943, it's almost 44. The tide had already turned against Germany in the east. I mean, effectively, its army, the, the bulk of its army was had already been crushed inside Russia. And then they come up with this uh, world domination plan of Hitler. He mm. never had such a plan. No. He never. He understood which uh, that New York and London were the two towers in the empire. He had no intention of disturbing that. In fact, he, like I said, he turned east with the understanding that he they had his back in the west. So that's yeah. the, that's another example of that duplicity, duplicitousness of uh, if, to know, you know. No understanding on part of FDR. He didn't know what he was saying when he said that. Mm. But he had, he had, on behalf of his people, just betrayed Hitler and their people by saying that they intend to come and carve up the United States. Let's go get them, boys. Yeah. America's in the war yeah. against Germany. They'd already been in the war, of course, against Japan. It never changes. You know, it's just pure cross propaganda. It's, it's horrible. I mean, the reason I, I was talking about... Uh, is keeping people agitated and keeping them afraid and that this prevents them from absorbing new information is because there's lots of cognitive kind of psychology or psychological studies done in recent years. And I think we've talked about it in previous shows about how... <laughs> I don't want to use bad words here. I, sometimes I'd like to use uh, swear words, you know, but... Um, Try to expand your vocabulary. I need to expand my vocabulary, yeah. Um, the problem is that there's no hope for the human race and there never has been because of human psychology. Maybe I'll qualify that by saying there's no hope for the human race and never has been because of human psychology combined with psychopaths in positions of power who are in a position to disseminate lies and misinformation and disinformation and you know just basically subvert reality, subvert the truth for people um, because people willingly accept uh, where they get their original ideas from is anybody's guess but they absorb them at a certain point they absorb this faulty information and then it never leaves them they're unable most people are unable to change their beliefs 
about certain things when they're ingrained beliefs about things. And it's horrible. Even when they're presented with hard, clear-cut evidence that what they believe is wrong, it's actually worse than, it's not that they don't, they just, it's not that they just don't uh, change their beliefs. It's that when they are confronted with information that contradicts, objectively proves their beliefs to be wrong, it makes people, makes most people actually believe what they believed previously all the all the stronger, more strongly. Uh, I'll just read a few things here from, um, I think it's from, it's from a few years back. The guy is a political scientist called Brandon Nyan. He's in the U.S., So the story goes that a few political scientists have begun to discover a human tendency (laughs) deeply discouraging to anyone with faith in the power of information. And this is it. Facts don't necessarily have the power to change our minds. Quite the opposite, in fact. In a series of studies in 2005 and 2006, researchers at the University of Michigan found that when misinformed people, particularly political partisans, were exposed to corrected facts in news stories, they rarely changed their minds. In fact, they often became even more strongly set in their beliefs. Facts, they found, were not curing misinformation. Like an underpowered antibiotic, facts could actually make misinformation even stronger. So he says, uh, this bodes ill for democracy. Yeah, no shit, Sherlock. Because most voters people making decisions about how the country runs, supposedly, aren't blank slates. They already have beliefs and a set of facts lodged in their minds. And he doesn't say where these facts come from, but, you know, we can guess. Uh, the problem is that sometimes they, the things they think they know are objectively and provably false. And in the presence of correct information, such people react very, very differently than the merely uninformed. Instead of changing their minds to reflect the correct information, they can entrench themselves even deeper. So he says, the general idea is that it's absolutely threatening to admit you're wrong. So, (laughs) it's... Yeah. People have, um, well, you said an underlying set of beliefs. What they have is a context they're familiar with. If you introduce a new fact to that context... The context will it'll bounce off the context. Mm. They would need to be in a position to entertain an entirely different context, a new story. Yeah. Well, to get to the state where they can readily accept a new story being imprinted right, on but them, it's threatening to them. Well, actually, they they found one way that people it makes it a little easier for people to accept. And this is really interesting. Make people accept new information that conflicts with their beliefs, and it's when when you scare them. No, <laughs> no. When you scare them, uh, when they're scared, they're totally uh, they're, they're, they shut out. Okay, it really makes it very difficult difficult to to for them to change the beliefs or anything when they're agitated. In fact, uh, he said um, he said he worked on one study in which he showed that people who were given a self affirmation exercise were more likely to consider new information than people who had not. In other words, if you feel good about yourself, you listen. And if you feel insecure or threatened, you won't. So he did the study where people were given an affirmation exercise where they felt or made to feel good about themselves, and then they were shown information that conflicted with their previous help, with their belief. And they were more open to changing their mind when they felt good about themselves. But if they felt threatened or insecure, it had the opposite effect. They could not 
accept new information. And he says, this would also explain why demagogues benefit from keeping people agitated. The more threatened people feel, the less likely they are to listen to dissenting opinions and the more easily controlled they are. Now, which demagogues in the world today are, have been keeping the people the agitated the most? Take your time. I have no idea. Who's been waging a war on terror and extolling or, or promoting the dire threat to freedom and democracy in the homeland from the evil arch-terrorists who are everywhere under your bed and in every country in the world? Who's been doing that? I mean, this. I'm not saying that whoever's doing this knows that this is a way to keep people basically ignorant. You have to, first of all, you've promote and feed them false information then you keep them afraid and threatened so that they will never be able to assimilate new information even if it's even if it's available to them which it is today um i mean if you consider this this idea in terms of what fox news and other kind of low level rags you know media rags do uh they simply project project false information at people and uh, you know, and people absorb it. I mean, it's, people have these beliefs. People develop beliefs or, or absorb beliefs all the way along uh, throughout their lives, you know. They, they get them from an early age, their foundational beliefs. But then as you grow and you start uh, becoming more aware and start, you know, taking an interest in something, you absorb information about that. But most of that information is false. And particularly in the, in the area of politics or world affairs and what's going on in the world, uh, you know, Media outlets like uh, Fox News uh, and other similar outlets that are kind of low level. It's crass. It's not very. It's not very uh, sophisticated. Let's say. Um, they just continually fill people's minds or reinforce uh, existing beliefs <clears throat> in people's minds um, w- with false information. You know, existing erroneous beliefs with further confirmation by presenting them with a stream of lies and disinformation. I mean, it, it seems to me that they, there's, a, there's a spectrum there, you know, because there maybe is more discerning people, more intelligent people who pride themselves on being more, uh, uh, on considering the facts before they make a decision or being more intellectual about things. You know, for those people, you have uh, the Washington Times or, or the New York Times or the Washington Post or something like that, uh, who will do exactly the same thing as Fox News does but just in a more subtle, nuanced way. If you look at what the New York Times writes about a topic and compare it with Fox News, Fox News is just saying something like the British would say about, you know, MH17, you know, newspapers have, Putin killed my baby. And the average person who reads those kind of newspapers, well, there's their belief, you know, it's, it's either a new belief or it's reinforcing what they've been programmed with previously, that Putin's evil, you know. But you read a New York Times article on it and it's just a more nuanced, subtle version of Putin's evil. And yeah. so the people who would read the New York Times and say, well, I like to, you know, I like to think about things beforehand. Well, no, that you're just, that's just a narrative bullshit that you're telling yourself. You're, you're absorbing the same wrong information and looking for information that will confirm your erroneous beliefs. Um, so, yeah, it's a problem. Yeah. Oh, man, it's incurable. Like you said, it's hopeless. Yeah. Is you that know? the bottom line? Is that your final word? Final answer is we're all screwed, yeah. I mean, if you put if you put your faith in the masses of humanity to ever stand up or rise up and do something about the dire state of the of the world at the moment, the global society, 
where all of the values are uh, effectively anti-human values, you know, where war and destruction and death and narcissism and self-interest is is glorified. Um, and there's an underlying narrative or a background narrative as to why people should do that, you know, why you need to be, you know, why America, for example, needs to be the policeman of the world and go over there and fight them over there in case they, so we don't have to fight them over here. Um, if you're looking for anybody to ever see through that or, or look at the result of that and say, you know, this is wrong. We shouldn't be going around the world killing, invading, blah, blah, blah. We shouldn't be having wars. It shouldn't be a militarized state of, of, of the global community, effectively. Um, it's never going to happen. People are never going to... Uh, they may say that, yeah, it's bad, but the problem is, is that they believe in the necessity or the need for uh, America to project its power around the world because America stands for freedom and democracy and freedom and democracy is a good thing and we should spread freedom around the world and these are all yeah. these are all the beliefs that are completely false and they're they're unspoken the astonishing thing about it is they're in in your formulation of it there you are too explicit that would never even rise into their minds let me give an example um in putin's brief speech at the victory parade yesterday he just he he made no reference to the United States, but he said unfortunately, and he didn't go so far as to you know berate. The, in fact, he just left it simple. He said the post World War II system was stable, you know, and it took us through the creation of the UN and modern institutions and blah blah blah. Sadly, in recent decades, particularly in the last decade, he, he said something like certain countries have attempted to establish a unipolar world based on. What he had just said were e- the evils that gave rise to the Nazis, exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. Of course, exceptionalism is a key word for the United States. And from that, headlines, I'm reading a headline in The Guardian saying something like, Putin gets in, dig at US. Mm. I'm thinking, well, hold on a minute. You're The Guardian lefty liberal thinkers, right? Would you not agree, as you do make the case for on many other occasions, that one country's right to project its power by blowing the shit out of another country is not the right thing to do. And they would have gone, oh, yes, oh, totally, yeah, totally agree with you, totally agree with you. But let's get a dig in here at Putin when he makes a veiled allusion to right. that being wrong. Because it's servicing the, their belief that Putin is... Uh, their evil. subconscious belief is that they identify, what they feel good being self-identified with effectively a white uh, Atlantic empire. So that is run by the United States, and they actually are very, very happy with it, and they are threatened by it when somebody makes un- Uncle uh, Uncle Sam feel bad, and he, uh, they don't like to see Uncle Sam agitated. Well, I think it's they get nervous. Yeah, it's because of their beliefs. It threatens their beliefs. You know, the beliefs in themselves, and uh, it does give them, I suppose, a certain level of pride and and um, you know, egotism in that Western viewpoint of we are the leaders of the free world type of thing. You know. But um, I don't think people would necessarily, in an ideal situation, would ha- would need that to uh, to change their beliefs, you know, uh, and say, okay, Russia isn't so bad, and you know, th- understand the the truth about the Second World War, etc. Uh, people could do that, but the problem is that they have these ingrained beliefs about the way things are, and it's, like I said, these beliefs are being formed and reinforced 
on an ongoing basis. I mean, we can we, you can look back at the past few years, maybe going back to 2006 when it was first introduced into the collective consciousness of the Brits, let's say, for example, but also Western Europeans, but particularly the Brits, because it happened in Britain, where uh, the media and the British government promoted the idea that Putin was responsible for killing Alexander Litvinenko, that he was an assassin, essentially. He all but pulled the trigger himself or dropped the polonium in his tea himself. Uh, you know, so that idea was seeded then, and then since then they've built on that progressively. And at this point, after only just a few short years, uh, people have that belief that Putin's evil. And when they're given information that reinforces that belief, they will automatically go with that belief. Because they have a fundamental need to reinforce a belief that they already have. That's the problem. Yeah. That's how screwed up human human psychology yeah. is. And it they doesn't have go. to be screwed up, like I said. It's only screwed up in the, in the, in the, in the situation where you have a, a power structure, an elite, a government, whatever, that is promoting lies, that isn't being honest and isn't telling the truth and does, simply doesn't want everybody to live peaceably on this planet. They want to divide and conquer and exploit people for themselves. And the people, because of their natural human psychology, the natural makeup they have, they aid and abet that process, uh, you know, unwittingly to, to a large extent. I mean, <coughs> you say that you mentioned this U.S., this Western kind of Anglo-American kind of empire that is run by the by by the U.S. It clearly is, you know, when you see, uh, I mean, within the past few weeks, there's been stuff about German German intelligence effectively working for the NSA. And there's been more stuff that's come out recently about the NSA asking Germany's uh, intelligence service to spy on Siemens. Now, Siemens is a, probably one of the biggest German companies and a very reputable global uh, corporation, but German in origin. And the NSA just felt, this is U.S. intelligence, were able to go to German intelligence and say, hey, you see one of your most important corporations that you know, generates a lot of revenue for and, and prestige for Germany, spy on them for us and give us the information. But why? Because there are alleged links with Russian intelligence. Uh, so there's you know, this, this fear-mongering business where you can get people to do stuff based on fear, you know, put them into the state of, uh, uh, this is called trans-marginal inhibition almost, where you, where you activate something in the, the fear response in them. This may even work on on members of uh, intelligence services or heads of intelligence services where the NSA can hype up the threat of Russia to German intelligence to the extent that the German intelligence will hand over information on their own domestic corporations to the Americans. I think at that level, I, I think at that level you're entering more of a conscious political decision. Yeah, there's something in it for them. The US. Maybe there's something in it for them, but I think uh, a lot of people will go along with it. Maybe lower level functionaries and stuff would go along with it because they have all swallowed the lie about the desperate threat of Russia. And, you know, it's interesting that they did it so soon, relatively soon after the the end of the Cold War, because they didn't want that whole memory of the Cold War to fade too long and for Russia to become reintegrated into the nations of the world as a Western, you know, modern Western nation type thing. Uh, they, you know, they wanted to use the living memory threat of the evil Russian empire and reignite it and reshape it or retool it in the form of the evil 
Empire of Vlad, the Mad, Putino. You know, and people and people say, "Oh yeah, he's the guy from Russia, and Russia was evil, and we hated them, and yeah, they're evil." Let's yeah. What do you want? You want some information? Here's my dental records. Whatever you need. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, and even where there's no explicit relationship with this hmm. issue, uh, oh, you need to be with us or you're with the Russians. Uh, it, it's almost like it. Uh, yeah, well, I'm going to give you an example. In France this week, they passed this or about to pass this new anti-terror legislation at the same time as Canada has just, it looks like it's just passed new anti-terror laws. And both for very different sorts, the reasons are irrelevant. The point I'm making is that they're doing as Big Brother does. They're going further in the direction of... uh, What are they going further in the direction? I mean, the, the U.S. is... Uh, basically a police state. The only outcome for anyone aligned with or believing the same stuff or things begin to think in the way that American leadership does is to end up in the same place as them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they must, but they don't understand this. But there's no halfway house. You're not going to be in a relatively free Europe and be on America's side in this. You're either going the whole nine yards with them to mm-hmm. totalitarianism or you're not. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, France and Canada both passing anti-terror legislation this week. Uh, the Canadian one's hilarious. It grants the country's spy agency powers to operate overseas for the first time. You've got to be kidding me. I mean, <laughs> we know... The Canadian intelligence was was probably uh, probably managing the operation to bring thousands of Western teenage girls into Syria to sell off as brides to the jihadis. They also ship into Syria. I mean, <sighs> talk about getting like legislation on the cards just to retrospectively mm-hmm. to justify what you've been doing for so long. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's same in the U.S., but the U.S. is uh, streets ahead of everyone else in that in that respect. The U.S. has that's what the U.S. has been doing, and you have places like Canada and France and other countries uh, <clears throat> and saying, "Hey, that's a good idea. You know, we should do that too." But I mean, the U.S. has been engaged in illegal uh, wars and invasions, covert illegal wars and invasions of countries uh, of other countries for decades, for fifty, sixty years. You know, and uh, spying on uh, American citizens. And everything that, you know, is against the U.S. Constitution, essentially, they've been doing it for decades. So um, they just needed a reason then to make it official, and they want to make it official. It's like a step. It's it's really the this, the objectification or the, the realization of the the kind of police state or totalitarian state dream, which is where you can have official laws in the books that allow you to implement the the details and the the specifics of a totalitarian police state uh, because you've been doing it for so long in the dark 
it's getting a bit annoying. You know, you're getting a bit, geez, you know, I mean, really, we've been putting in our time here for decades doing this kind of stuff. Can't we, can't we all be above board official? You know, because that would make it so much easier, you know. Wouldn't have to run around in the dark and do backroom deals and cover things up and stuff. Can't we all just be, you know, can everybody just agree yeah. to have a totalitarian state? Yeah, we can if we get the right kind of threat. Yeah, that kind of threat. But it's probably more complex than that. It takes time to... Uh, well, you bring it people takes, around because it, it takes it creates time to, a culture. It creates yes, a culture. But you need you need you need the culture to come up to your yeah or down to the level. And they've been you're working at. on that for decades. Yes, um, such that when there's a, <clears throat> for example, what might have been an otherwise damning exposure of Canadian intelligence kidnapping, abducting, and or transporting teenage girls into Syria. Um, the Canadian government can go, can actually go, <laughs> yes, it's true. Um, sorry, I'm not going to answer more questions on that because of national security. But and the rest of the country can go, oh, oh yeah, 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 okay, get it. Yeah, it's all no detailed problem. in that latest anti-terrorism bill. You know, the, 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 the laws allowing for us to do this are in the anti-terrorism, yeah. and anti-terrorism bill. Yeah, uh, slightly off topic, but kind of related. 20 years ago, there was nearly a, uh, Effectively, the government in Belgium was nearly overturned, uh, uprising basically, when there were millions of people of a tiny country of 10 million on the streets over the the true scandal. Um, what is was, the true scandal? Hmm? What is the true scandal? The true scandal was when uh, Mark de True, one, this guy was arrested and found to have been abducting and raping young girls. Uh, supplying them to uh, then uh, a lot of them were found and he was linked into a lot of other people as part of a network that supplied them to basically members of the elite in Brussels members of the European elite as well who were based in Brussels um, all the way up to and including the, some of the witnesses the girls named members of the royal family and it was a major scandal I wouldn't say people believe the whole lot lock stock but they heard enough that was coming out through the media to go, okay, this is bad. This is really, really bad. So it was a pretty much a national uprising over it. Um, I'm, I'm bringing that up now because the, the contrast with today, where you, you wouldn't ever get to that. A few weeks ago, the British Home Secretary, who was still the Home Secretary following the elections, felt secure enough, or whatever way you want to phrase it, to, after all of the the details that have emerged in the UK of thousands and thousands of victims of uh, sex abusers, most or certainly many of whom have been abused by members of the political elite, uh, up to and including members of parliament in the last few decades. Members of the cabinet of government. Members of the uh, cabinet of government in the 1980s and 90s, such that the Tory Home Secretary, Theresa May, was able to pass comment on this and say it is a sad state of affair, but unfortunately it seems that paedophilia is ingrained into our society. And she just carries on. In fact, three weeks later, she's voted back in with the Tory government. The English actually, after all of this scandal, gave the Tories a majority government. I mean, she's partially right. In a way, it's a major deflection because she's saying, well, if you're going to finger us... Uh, the pedophiles in power, well, what about the role you all play? She's kind of right. It's ingrained into society. But she's in a comfortable enough position to be able to say that because the society has degraded that low. It is mm-hmm. that far gone down into the pits of hell 
that she can say that. And yeah, yeah, pull her voter in now. Yeah. Well, really just, yeah, I mean, that's, I don't know, it's apathy or I think for a lot of people in the U.S., someone in the, on the chat room just said that it's apathy that amongst the population that, um, that allows these things to happen. You know, people just feel like they have no power. They can't do anything anymore. You have a small section of people who will protest this, but the majority of people have just kind of given up. An example is in the recent UK elections, uh, the, there was something like a 66% turnout. But that means that there was 33 plus percent, uh, 33 or 34% of the population uh, uh, who didn't vote. Well, that's officially higher than the last election. Right, it's officially higher. But the thing about it is, and it's an interesting kind of statistic or an interesting way to look at it, that block of people who did not vote are the majority. There was that, that 33%, there was no other percentage, no other group of people voted for any of the other parties. All of the other parties, conservatives, got less of the popular vote than that, than that 34% yeah. of people who did not vote. So the majority of people in the UK do not vote, are, are not interested in anything that's on offer. You know, uh, <laughs> there's elections coming up in uh, Poland, uh, Poland, Polish presidential elections, and one talking about uh, pedophilia being ingrained into society is absolutely true, obviously, and that's, I mean, that's the final indictment of our society. If, if the West is the leader of, of uh, global values, global social values or cultural values, then uh, that's a final damning indictment that our planet has hit the wall. It's, it can't go any lower. No, you're consuming your own children. You're consuming right, the next generation, right. and it's, literally. And it's sanctioned, effectively, yeah. if only by turning away or not or ignoring it or shutting it out. It's sanctioned by the, the people, the ordinary people of the planet. So they all bear responsibility as well. But in these Polish presidential elections that are upcoming, one of the candidates is running on a ticket of legalizing child pornography. So, I mean, it's ingrained, yeah, it's ingrained in society when you can have a candidate for the presidential uh, elections in Poland running on that ticket, and he isn't automatically thrown in jail. He's actually, I mean, he's going to run for president on that, under that banner. Uh, there are MPs really? here in France who are uh, notorious and publicly known pedophiles. Yeah, and nobody uh, cares. Of course, there's legislation in the Netherlands where I think it's effectively, it is effectively legal. I mean, I think the statutory limit is age 14 mm-hmm. in the Netherlands. Uh, that's effectively legalized pedophilia. Yeah. There's interesting, um, just on the stuff that we've been talking about, when we were any shows we've done on Putin, in Russia, East versus West, the whole debacle over the past few years, Ukraine. And we were, when we've referenced, as we have today, um, European countries, for example, giving up their data about their domestic corporations to the NSA because of a potential threat from Russia or whatever. Uh, the idea that we have been pointing out the obvious elephant in the room that Western European Governments are completely enthralled to the Americans, or are completely under their under their heel. Um, it's kind of gaining traction. It's so obvious. It's amazing that it hasn't gained more traction. Uh, but of course, people in the in the Western press, the Western press, the Western media will not uh, admit to that because obviously it's uh, <laughs> it's the truth. So uh, they don't they don't tell the truth usually. Um, but there was a 
an article in uh, recently in a major Italian newspaper, newspaper Il Giornale, uh, where journalist uh, Gian Michalessin um, was talking about the the commemoration yesterday in Europe and the fact that no European EU leaders, uh, presidents attended it. And he said, he basically said, he calls, he blamed Barack Obama, but he's talking about the US. He says, just to please ally Barack Obama, the true inspirer and the great puppeteer of all anti-Russian maneuvers, Europe forgets that a strategic alliance cannot ignore the continent's geographical position and its economic needs. Uh, so he's, I mean, this is in a major, probably the most, the most read Italian newspaper. Um, this guy is pointing out the obvious that we've been saying for a long time, which is that, uh, the EU is basically doing America's bidding in this war against Russia, but that they're forgetting the fact that Europe is on the original landmass and it's a natural business partner with Russia. America is not. And that they're forgetting this, uh, by saying a strategic alliance, i.e. the EU's strategic alliance with the US cannot ignore Europe's geographical position and its economic needs, i.e. its need to do business with Russia. Yeah. No business. finally getting some mainstream public attention. Not a lot, but some people still have a little bit of sense, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, well, the other thing, just on that point, just yeah. to, before we go on, um, there's a recent story, the, the, the ongoing running debacle about the two uh, Mistral French, partly French-made Mistral warships Oh yeah, uh, that were meant to be sold, uh, that were a deal was struck with Russia. To Russia wanted to buy two of them. Uh, Russia, the, the hulls, the front, the stern, I think, was made in a Russian shipyard, shipped to France, and then the rest was put together and with the technology or whatever uh, in France, in a French shipyard in Saint-Nazaire. Two of them meant to be delivered last September, last September, and this year uh, they reneged on the deal that the French, because of Ukraine, because of Russia's meddling in Ukraine, which was basically, you know, the statement the French made on that, why they're not giving the ships to Russia, came directly from the White House or from the State Department. Here, read this, Aland. You're not giving those ships to Putin. So, and they've continued to say that they can't, they're not going to, that recently they were, Holland was saying they could simply repay Russia the 1 billion, 1.1 billion that they owe them plus a fine for breaking the contract. But they've also, some French officials in the government, unnamed officials have mooted the idea that they would, after I suppose they would pay Russia back, they would simply sink them. Take them out to sea and sink them. This is the level these people are willing to go to. I mean, uh, that's why I have no hope. Uh, as much as it would be nice to see sanity prevail and the EU to say, hang on a minute, you know, why are we even dealing with Russia anymore? Or why are we even dealing with the US anymore? You know, I mean, why are we la- allowing them to do this? As much as it would be nice for that, to see that happen, I don't think it's going to happen. When you see these ideas mooted of basically sinking two ships worth over a billion dollars that you've promised to Russia simply for an ideological uh, reason that, you know, we don't like Russia, so... We're not going to give them to them and screw the money and screw all the people who lose their jobs. We're going to sink them at sea, two brand new ships. I mean, that's just pure insanity and factlessness and, you know, obtuseness beyond any imagination. I mean, these people are insane. They're idiotic. They've just lost the plot whatsoever. They're like politicians gone wild, basically, you know. (laughs) I mean, there's those shows of, you know, like 
spring breakers gone wild, you know, which kind of in the U.S. it shows uh, spring break in the U.S. Probably people know what it's like when kids get out of college or whatever and they go on spring break places and it you know, portrays like the supposed, you know, nature of children, of teenagers uh, who have spent a semester in college and they've been working hard and stuff. And now they just want to give full vent to their teenage hormonal you know, urges and activities, they all go down to Cancun or somewhere or Florida and go crazy and drink and go, well, this is politics. That's spring breakers going wild. This is politicians going wild, you know. At the scenes, we've reached the point where they're able to give vent to their own, the natural kind of political, or the natural nature of, of people who want to be politicians, which is to be complete assholes. <laughs> and they've finally just let them off the leash. Just go crazy. Just be the asshole you've always wanted to be or you always were but had to hide because of public perception. <laughs> it's It's great. It's It's... Oh, uh, I, I almost hope it happens because it'll be just the defining moment of the expression so many people have used to describe bizarre actions of European governments in response to the standoff with Russia. The whole sanctions war has come to the point where everyone is using the line, well, why is Europe cutting off its nose despite its face here by pushing Russia, who will then push back in return and actually hurt Europe's own economic interests. Because they don't care. Because those people have just, they've given up. I mean, it seems to me that at some level of the power pyramid at the apex or whatever in in these countries, they realize that something's coming down the pipeline and it doesn't matter anymore. You know, economic considerations don't, don't matter anymore. You do what you're told because forget about the economy you can run it into the ground it won't make any difference they they have completely relinquished any concern <clears throat> for social welfare or for the people they see this in the UK the Tories just got re-voted in supposedly and um, supposedly. and the Tories who have been eviscerating the uh, yeah. who have been destroying the National Health Service the past four, year, four or five years are going to continue to do that where you know people will be sleeping people will be you know treated outside in the ditch basically you go to hospital uh, there's no room in that ditch, and we'll, we'll get the local butcher to come and cure your hemorrhoids or something. You know, uh, that's where it's going. You know, we gotta we gotta talk about the UK elections. This this is the first time since sixties that a government has remained in power and increased its vote share in a subsequent election. The Tories, <laughs> that can't be right. My first hunch was. They knew a hung parliament was coming, which is a situation where there's no clear majority in the British parliament. And so they said, you know what? We can't be bothered with the hassle of going through this. We just need it clear and simple. We have plenty of other governments around the world to subvert. We've got wars to be getting on with funding. Lots on our agenda. Why don't we just simply throw it have in a favor sham. of one of the parties? Just have a sham election and get on with it because there's, a, there's the business to get on with, which is completely ignoring the will of the people as we've always done and just working, doing what we've done, what we've been doing for years, decades, which is uh, yeah, plundering the world and you know scooping up the last resources that are available before the shit really hits the fan because it's all going down the tubes anyway, so it doesn't matter. And certain, like we said in the UK, 33, 34% of the people at least um, have a bit of sense and didn't vote, yeah. you know, because it's it's ridiculous. It's like voting for a bunch of, a, a bunch of contestants at a freak show, you know what I mean, at a... At a at one of those, uh, yeah, like a freak show, you know, you've got the, 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 the man with two heads, the bearded lady, and uh, the crocodile man or well, something, you know. And funnily enough, there was actually a pick beard. one of them. 
you're not going to believe this, but the Labour Party <laughs> had a bearded lady as as their chief spokesperson when what, they went to Scotland. It wasn't that one that won this, the Eurovision Song Contest, was it? No, no, it was an English. It's a comedian, Eddie Izzard. It's a man oh, yeah, yeah. who dresses as a woman I know from Eddie, time yeah. to time. Yeah. And so he was the kind of spokesman on behalf of the Labour Party, yeah. you know, come in touch with the people. Yeah. Uh, but that was staged. There was a bit of a, there was a bit of a, a bit of news about that where they, they said that they were, this was him, this comedian, and the Labour Party leader, Scottish Labour Party leader, were going around Glasgow or one of the towns in Scotland, and they were supposedly accosted by burly, aggressive SNP people. But then there's a, so they had this on the news, on the news, you know, on the evening news, and they showed. It was very up close. You didn't see what was going on. It was just in the faces of these two, these two guys, and the the claim was that they were they were being attacked by an aggressive SNP mob. But then there were other pictures coming afterwards showing it, and there was basically nobody. It was just those two, their group of little labour supporters, and about one or two people who didn't even say they were from the SNP. So they totally fabricated that, and they run up to yeah. it was it was just a few days before the election. It was a desperate attempt to smear the SNP. And the SNP is. Uh, you know, has basically won all but three seats. Well, in this Scotland. is the thing. If Which the Tories were thrown the results in England, what do they just let things run their natural course in Scotland? Yeah, well, I don't even know if they, if the Tor- if uh, if they well, I mean, Labour threw it in England uh, in favour of Sorry, the Tories. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I don't even know if that happened. I think it's just uh, the a majority of. The people in English the voters actually are, are voted still, for. Well, yeah. So sixty-six percent of people, English people, are still deluded. You know, are completely dissociated in a, in a trance, basically, and are just have their heads in the sand or somewhere else. You know, and are living the dream, believing the bullshit. You know, and keeping going. And they're just and they voted more or less along kind of party lines. And uh, as as you get between elections, a swing from one to the other. You know, the Conservatives, not that we'll probably see in another five years, but in five years' time, if we're still around, um, you'll see the Conservatives will have destroyed a bunch of things and public opinion will have turned against them and Labour will come back in. You'll have a you'll have a, a similar split that you had the other day, the other way, in five years' time. It's ridiculous. It's back and forth like a yeah. US Democrat-Republican. But the only interesting thing was the SNP uh, in the fact that they took, they basically kicked every, all English people out of Scotland. Uh, um, virtually everybody in Scotland voted for the Scottish National Party, and now the Scottish National Party leader and the the, the new members. These, these are for Scottish National Party seats in Parliament in Westminster in London, right? Uh, so everybody in Scotland, to the extent that they're allowed, everybody in Scotland voted for a Scottish National Party politician to sit in the English London UK Parliament. Uh, that says. That the whole independence thing last year was was that's the strongest evidence for me that it was rigged. Yeah, you totally. can't have that kind of a swing around an opinion in eight months. In eight months or seven or eight months, yeah, no. um, it's ridiculous. And but they're talking now about having a new referendum. They, they, yeah, they, I hope they do because I'd like to see them see it again. <clears throat> they probably would, but I'd like to see it happen. <laughs> You'd like to see them try to rig it again. Yeah, I'd like to see them rig it again. Yeah, so I was again, hoping on, that the SNP would just simply say, "Well, that's it. That's the mandate we need. We hereby declare independence." Well, they should. Yeah, but Nick has to be democratic and all that. The leader went out of her way to say during, like, prior to the results, that we in no way would interpret the results as a mandate for independence. 
Yeah. Uh, I'm a little worried. I think there was a coup there in the party, and I think this new one is controlled a lot more she than... May, yeah, she may well be, but... The other guy was. Sorry, Scott. No chance of independence. You just have to not, there's no way you're going to... You're gonna get it by actually by actually playing the rules. <laughs> I'm sorry, but uh, the uh, Sinn Fein got a uh, clear majority of independence. Uh, you know, they got they returned a majority of massive majority of Sinn Fein candidates in British elections in 1917. And do you think that meant anything? No, of course not. And we knew that, so we just said, okay, we're just gonna act as if mm-hmm. we have our own parliament. Yeah. And then they turned around and you're forcing them to then react to it. The only way you're going to get past it is to just act as if. Unilaterally declare independence, basically. Set up your own parliament, your own structures. They already have it, though. It's so easy for them to do it. There's all sorts of backroom deals going on. Anyway, um, so while millions of people were on the streets in Russia, by the way, there's a new element to the marches. I mean, it's not just a glorification of Russia and big up war. I mean, it's a very somber affair what mm-hmm. they do in Russia, but there's a new element to it for over the last three years. It started like, it's like a viral campaign kind of thing. It started in a small Siberian town, but they call it the Immortal Regiment, where just people walk the streets before or after a military parade. Um, and they just carry a photo or a letter or some artifact from someone in their family who was killed in the war. Mm-hmm. And I think in Moscow alone, there were 500,000 people mm-hmm. walking. It was pretty, pretty amazing. Putin himself was actually at the head of the Moscow parade with a photo of his father. But, but yes, while the regiment parades are taking place all across Eastern Europe, Central Asia, Russia, uh, riots in the U.S. where most people probably... F- aren't even aware there was a second war or what it meant. Uh, a lot of people weren't. I don't know how much faith you can put in those videos you see on YouTube by people going around asking the average person in the street, you know, questions, but there's one about the Second World War when people didn't even know what it was. No. No. Um, mothers of dead police brutality victims marched in D.C. That was the same time as the commemorations in Eurasia. Uh, so this is the latest kind of I don't know how many, but it wasn't just the mothers of actual victims from attacks uh, or from arrests or being shot by cops, but there were a lot of support from the general public as well turned up in D.C. yesterday. Um, there was two police officers were shot dead in Mississippi, apparently just random. Mm-hmm. That they were just doing a regular routine stop. And the people in the car just shot them dead on the spot and ran. They were caught then, right? They were caught and they're black suspects. So mm-hmm. you can see where that's going in Mississippi. Ramping it up. Um, like we mentioned earlier on, ISIS. threat from ISIS after the uh, the attack, the shooting at the um, the cartoon, the, the Muhammad cartoon uh, competition or award ceremony in uh, Texas during the week. What was that about? A Muhammad prophet? What I, I know it was organized by some far right group. Pam Geller, the Pam, Jewish yeah, American Pam, impact woman. Pam Geller, yeah, she's a she's a hoot. That one, uh, American political activist and commentator. She's basically she's known for anti-Islamic positions, and you know she's she's Jewish and she's you know I don't know, don't want to get into that, but you know you can see she's like 
Rita Katz, there's a version of Rita Katz yeah. from a site that produces all these ISIS, uh, you know, videos, gets them to, gets them to the press or to YouTube before ISIS can apparently somehow. But anyway, uh, it's hyping up the threat and she's in the style of Charlie Hebdo type thing, you know, she, she's promoting, not that she does them, but she's promoting an event where uh, an award was given, uh, offered to the best depiction of the prophet um, in a cartoon and uh, some guy just pulled up um, two guys apparently pulled up uh, and shot um, shot at but the, the place was uh, full of police it was you know crawling with police because of the nature of it and the, the guys were uh, were shot and they, they spent but, 10 but, grand on security right so a bunch of right-wing nutjobs who, you know, think that Sharia law is coming to America and you have to stand up for Christian, Democratic, Jewish, whatever values. It's coming to blah, Texas blah. first, right? It's coming to Texas, yeah. It's ridiculous. But it's interesting that it's in Texas because, you know, that's one of the places that this um, whole hoo-ha about... Uh, oh, it's uh, Jade Helm later this summer. Right. It's going to take place in Texas, partly in Texas, and also this stuff about um, the closure of the Walmart stores. Uh, that people have linked with Jade Helm. The Jade Helm exercises thinking that these five stores that were closed from Florida across to California, Florida, Oklahoma, two in Texas, uh, one, and one in California, I think, um, that these are in some way linked uh, with the Jade Helm exercise, that there's some grand plan as part of Jade Helm to uh, institute martial law and uh, use Walmarts, these closed Walmarts, as staging centers, people have said there's underground tunnels underneath them, etc., etc. Um, yeah, so it's interesting that you have that, and then you have um, in the background, but you have this, you know, last week, um, the shooting in Texas at a award ceremony for the depiction of Muhammad, and um, ISIS said that it had sent sent these, these guys, guys there, encouraged them, whatever. And then, so ISIS basically attacked that, and it has then declared afterwards, it then supposedly declared afterwards that it was going to, it had thousands of operatives ready to strike at any moment, blah, blah, blah. And so the FBI and CIA, et cetera, all upped their security at different locations because of this threat. So, I mean, they're building it, you know, it's being, it's being built up. I don't for, suppose for ISIS you know. are going to hit the very towns that are participating in Jade Helm operations this summer. You never know, there could be a shootout, you know could go live as these uh, exercises tend to do now and again you know, go live you know what is mad it's it, it, was, it was this isn't uh, leaked or anything this was a formally announced series of operations mm. from a month ago of um, military slash civilian a bit of both mm-hmm. emergency readiness exercise in five southwestern US states uh, what and it's going to be held simultaneously, so it's a big deal. I'm trying to get my head around what what, what do they say is the rationale? For rationale for Jade Helm is that it's preparedness training for uh, various types of uh, various uh, sections of the U.S. military to give them training in urban warfare uh, that will be useful to them. Uh, as training for the kinds of operations when they go abroad for the kinds of operations they will be engaged in overseas one of them interestingly is which gives you an insight into what the US military does overseas is that in 
the towns or the cities that are involved in Jade Home, uh, people have been told uh, that uh, the military will be operating in the, in the city, but that they will be trying to operate undercover, incognito, effectively, uh, and that people are being asked to play, citizens of these cities are being asked to play their part by looking out for anything suspicious. So the people are being asked to try and spot these undercover military operatives in the U.S. and report on them so then they can assess how well they have integrated themselves or infiltrated uh, the community. Uh, supposedly that's why that would be useful for the U.S. military overseas because it spends most of its time uh, in foreign countries pretending not to be there. <laughs> <laughs> It's so, just bizarre. But it no, doesn't it make just, any sense because it does make they, sense because it doesn't make any sense. Well, it's nonsense, really. It's, yeah. it's obviously got another agenda because the U.S. has uh, uh, has no limit to its opportunities for those kind of training exercises in other countries. It doesn't need around it. The world. It, it. It does it all the time. It's been doing it for decades. So why would you try, start doing it back at home? You've been doing it across the world and continue to do it across the world. Um, the only obvious today, reason is that they're preparing to lock down. Right, that it's some maybe not a, imminently, but it's setting a scene. It's a preparation. It's setting a a, a context or a, a scenario within which something else can occur. That's my guess, because there's no other real. It's it's bullshit. The, the official reason is bullshit, obviously, for the same the same in the same way. The official reason for the closure of the Walmart stores is bullshit. What's your take on that? What's going on there? It wasn't plumbing. They just fired all the staff in five stores. Yeah. Well, they fire all the stuff. It makes sense. I mean, it's Walmart doesn't close down stores, and one of them was in its top ten in the U.S. Now there's I don't know how many thousands of stores, Walmart stores in the U.S., but this was the, one of them was the top in the top ten uh, grossing stores in the U.S. For sales, made, made the most money. Yeah. So they just closed down five of them uh, across the U.S. from Florida, one in Florida, one in Oklahoma, two in Texas, and one in California. And they closed, and these are big box stores, so big stores close them all down. On the day, just had their executives walk in, say, uh, close the business today, you're all gone. <laughs> Bye. I'm like, what? Uh, plumbing, emergency plumbing, need plumbing done. Plumbing, plumbing. And it'll take six months to a year six to finish. Six months to a year to finish, which is nonsense. And people come out and say, this is bullshit. This has, uh, Walmart doesn't do this. They don't sacrifice that kind of revenue just for plumbing. Anytime, and even they've had um, contractors, plumbing contractors have worked worked at Walmart stores and said that's not how they do it. If they have a plumbing problem, they've set up temporary facilities and get the plumbing done as Overnight. fast. And we have to do it as fast as possible. Yeah. We have a very limited amount of time to do it because they want to get it back. They don't want any disruption. Uh, and other pe- people at these stores all have been on record as saying there's no plumbing problem in that store. I've, been, I've used that toilet. I've used those restrooms every day for the past three years and there was never a problem. And I've never seen a plumber in any of them. So it's nonsense. So they shut them down. It makes sense for them to shut them down quickly like that. Because if you announce in advance uh, that people are going to lose their jobs and stuff, well then, you've got a long time, you've got weeks or months, depending on how long you, how long in advance you announce it, you, for people to start asking questions, saying, hang on a minute, and give people, you give people time to, to lobby local politicians and get different interest groups to investigate it, to put pressure, to, you know what I mean? If you've got an agenda and you want these stores closed down and for some other purpose, to use them for some other purpose, you do it immediately and then you stonewall everybody. 
you know. Still, but it's a sign of the times that you can do even that because well, they can do that in the US, no problem. That's why they, that's why they chose they were able that was an option because you can just fire people. Well, in the US, those people, I think it was one month. It's one month's notice or one month's, maybe three months, either one or three months' notice or one or three months' salary. So they chose no notice and to give them a couple of months' salary uh, as severance package, and that was it, gone. The contracts don't really mean it's working at Walmarts. People don't have any rights really at all. So they now so have these big five big boxes down and why? <laughs> well, uh, there's, the speculation is that they're going to be used in these urban areas. They're going to be used uh, as military command centers or staging grounds. Do their locations overlap with Jade Helm? They're relatively close, yeah. Right. But, I mean, not just five. There could be more in the next few months. You could see more Walmarts uh, closing down and uh, opening up their facilities to something else, you know. Uh, but all the work would be done inside, you know. They can be turned, they're big areas. They're big, you know, I don't know, million square feet or something like that. Um, they can be turned into some kind of logistical center. Right, right, right. In the middle for of... For a post-crisis or mid-crisis exactly, yeah. scenario. That's that's the most you reasonable explanation, yeah. Here's your FEMA card. Go to your FEMA center. Right. Wow. Join the queue. So things are getting real. Yeah. There's another story just this week that uh, piqued my interest, which was uh, there were uh, clashes, just out of the blue, clashes in um, Macedonia. Yes. Color revolution on the cards? Uh, it looks very, very much like it. it's the U.S.'s fingerprints all over that one, uh, sending a message to... Uh, well, to Europe in general, to the Kosovans, uh, Serbia. The Macedonian uh, president was due to be in Moscow for the praise. Right, he, had he to was, back. I think. Yeah, he, was, he had gone there and he had to come back, yeah. yeah. Um, so Macedonia was one of the very few uh, European EU countries um, that was friendly with Russia and was against sanctions. Oh, it's uh, not the EU, but well, no. anyway. Pros- aspiring within yeah. the EU's, I think they have some status, but uh, within the EU's... Uh, you know, sphere of influence, effectively. Yeah, I mean, the, it's right there, and it's on there, almost on the Adriatic, you know. So, um, but this is an example of, you know, so Macedonia is just above Greece. Right above that is Kosovo, um, and there's a history there. Obviously, the NATO bombing of Yugoslavia. These are former Yugoslav republics. Uh, lots of scope there for the U.S. to get in color revolution, and I think it's it's. Apart from maybe putting local pressure on Macedonian and Serbia, Kosovo uh, governments, it's also a little kind of notification to Greece. To, well, to, to Greece, but and Greece is right on the southern border. Yeah, but also and also to the EU. Is there anybody in the EU? Merkel, Hollande. Listen, no snuggling up to Russia, or you can have an, you can have another. I mean, you know, the Yugoslav uh, bombing Yugoslavia was before. Uh, the EU was as integrated as in today, and so they had formed their whole kind of um, their power structure. But today, uh, a similar situation of a major kind of civil war, quote unquote, in in the former Yugoslavia, in in, the, in those uh, Baltic states, um, Baltic states, uh, Balkan states, Balkan states, as um, is would not be good news for the EU project, you know. So. <clears throat> That's what I see it as, because it's just out of the blue, you know, the story was um, there, five Kosovans led uh, 
an armed group uh, that had clashes with Macedonian security forces, blah, 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 blah. In a town Mysterious. near... Yeah, in northern Macedonia. Um, yes, and that they were that they'd come over the border from Kosovo, right. which is not even a real country. It's basically a NATO uh, clearing center for drugs and prostitution. Smack in the middle of the Balkans. It's also a place where the KLA still operates and runs the country. In fact, the KLA was basically cleaned up, given suits and ties, and their leader became and the KLA was NATO's the proxy president of Kosovo, NATO's proxy forces in the Yugoslav War. So, uh, Yemen this week, the Saudi Arabia, the benevolent Saudis, after chopping off the heads of five foreigners this week, hot head choppers are in us. their benevolence decided to offer the Houthis they're bombing the crap out of. A ceasefire, how benevolent. And, of course, they agreed because the Houthis, they have no, no one to help them, no one to turn to. Officially, only 1,500 people have been killed. It's probably 10 times that so far. Thank you, Saudi Arabia. Probably up to 50,000 injured from Saudi bombings. Ah, what can you say? It's just insane. This, this war just quietly happens, and all the... All the high standards, the highfalutin democratic ideals. Oh, nobody in the 21st century does does that kind of thing. Uh, you know, Crimea. Here's a country bombing the hell out of the another sort of country, the and they're all just la 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 la. No, nothing to see. No, they're not just that. They're fully supporting it. They're they're logistically well. It. Yeah, but it, it's always carefully framed in the papers as the Saudi-led coalition. Right, yeah. Our hands aren't well. They all tomahawk cruise missiles being fired from the. From well, yeah, they bought them from us. That was their own sovereign choice. No, fired <laughs> from U.S. ships. Oh, okay. Well, they gave us backhanders, and we just pressed the buttons. But if we, we what we're going to do? We need the money. Exactly, we need the money. We're hard up. Um, the Russian-China thing. Okay, well, so Xi is in Moscow for the big parade. Obviously, there's more than just symbolism and history going on. It's nice how it dovetails, but simultaneously, for the first time ever, Chinese troops, specifically battleships, are in the Black Sea conducting war games exercises with the Russian Black Sea fleet. Think mm. about it, people. China, Black Sea, Europe, it's like, hello, we're over here. The Chinese are coming. <laughs> the Chinese are coming too. Um, and no, they, they, they can't equivocate the two situations because the one side, if you like, does things out in Macedonia, starts terrorizing the population. The other side starts promising massive rail and road networks that will link Kazakhstan with Beijing with Moscow with Germany. I mean, the, the the way they go about business is just so completely different. I mean, they they have said they're talking about completely integrating. I don't know. We could see major changes to the changes that have already happened in the last two years, but not. They have said that uh, they would integrate the Eurasian Union strategy with China's Silk Road plans. I don't know. You could have China joining the Eurasian Union, for example. They might be called something else at the end of it. But uh, here's another thing. That, that Guardian article I cited earlier, when it was, uh, it was a fairly decent summary of Moscow's Victory Day parade and why it's significant for Russians, but they couldn't help but get a couple of digs in. One of the digs they got in was, oh, well, Russia was isolated because the unlike, say, 10 years ago, the leaders of France and Italy and Britain didn't attend. 
Well, no, they didn't. But look who did attend. I, I checked on the map. The countries of the leaders of every single, except for a few uh, Middle Eastern countries, the entire contiguous landmass of the world island was represented in Moscow watching this military parade. Apart from Europe. Apart from Europe, basically, yes. And some other, a couple of Africans, a couple of South Americans. I mean, you're looking at 60 to 70% of the world's population of resources represented. And, and yet, yeah, the, the, the Guardian media. article is disparaging going, oh, well, the way, that. isolated Russia. The way the, boycotted. The way the, the way the, <laughs> Are the, you kidding? The way the UK independent described it was that, uh, mentioned the, the parade and the commemoration stuff, but uh, no A-listers. No one who matters. <laughs> no, one who, no one who matters. No political leaders who matter were there. The disgusting hubris of and you had the Westernism, Chinese, if you want to call it that. The it's Chinese just, and uh, obviously Russia. Was just, you have the Chinese premier sitting beside uh, Putin and you had Indian troops parading. The other thing is that the, the troops of all, most of these countries that uh, whose, whose leaders attended, uh, they paraded in, 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 in the... Yeah. In the process, you know, and um, so you had Indian, uh, South African, Mongolian, uh, you had um, Chinese, South American, and uh, you had uh, Venezuelan, Ven- maybe. Venezuelan, Maduro was there, you know, uh, Uzbek, Tajik, so the Central yeah, European it's Republics. But, but uh, for people Asian. in the West, it's like none of that matters. The rest of the world doesn't matter. It's this. This thing that has been that Americans are accused of, of of not knowing that the rest of the world exists outside of America that has kind of infected Western absolutely. Europe as well. That none of the rest of it works, and it's it's a very British kind of thing, you know, because <clears throat> it's it's a hallmark, it's a it's a hangover from the British Empire, you know, where they're aware that the rest of the world exists, but they they're not very important. They often know it in great detail. Yeah, but they're not very important. Oh, the border between we need a border clash here between Burma and Nepal. Yes, 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 that would work well, but yet <laughs> they haven't a clue about. And they go and they visit. They're very well traveled. They're yeah. worldly. You know, yeah. Westerners. They go are to bestow their tourists their all over the world on them. Oh, well, you're you're interestingly how they're British, but I'm thinking of my Irish parents who will be right up here. With, yeah, but they're well traveled, world traveled. But yeah, there's a lot of Irish people who are West Brits as well. They're called okay. West Brits. They're just especially from the east coast of Ireland. They're they're far too close to the UK and. Uh, you know, uh, you need to go to the far, to the Atlantic coast to find some real Irish people. You know. <laughs> the East, Eastern ones are just West Brits. That's what they're called. They even had accents, you know, they even had British accents. Um, yeah, just on the Macedonia thing also. I hope my mom isn't listening to this. No, I don't. I'm in trouble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, they are. But uh, just on the Macedonia thing, um, apart from those skirmishes right on cue, um, <clears throat> it was five days ago, I think, just beforehand, before the supposed Serb kind of... Uh, I don't know, Serb, what are they, revolutionaries or something, or <clears throat> Serb, Serb military detachment, not official, whoever it was that came across the border, not from Serbia. Oh, from Kosovo, Kosovo the KLA. From Kosovo, well, they don't say it was KLA, but they just say it was some paramilitaries basically ran across the border and had these clashes with Macedonian police. A few days previous to that, you had um, what appears to be uh, a kind of color revolution uh, protests in the Macedonian capital of um, Skopje. Uh, 2,000 people clashed with Macedonian police outside the government building as they called for the resignation of the Prime Minister. Hello, Colour Revolution. Uh, and the reason is that the, the, the Prime Minister is embroiled in a long-running wiretapping scandal. And who let that be known? Exactly. CIA. Yeah, who's the best at wiretapping? 
Other major news this week. Again, we should. I think it's interesting because I'm not really interested in in the topic itself because it's actually been going on ever since they started decided to blow the crap out of Libya. But the EU, at least countries within the EU, are making a big deal out of this migrants issue. Mm. I think it's partly because so many of them are coming in. Just a span of 48 hours, six and a half thousand migrants recovered from the Med. Six and a half thousand. They're just people who fell overboard on some ships over a period of two days last week. Uh, if, if these numbers are true, tens or hundreds of thousands of people are fleeing Libya and or other areas in North Africa right now. I just, the, the chaos they've created. Anyway, this is all, of course, directly, substantially directly as a result of the NATO bombing of Libya, destroying that country. And what is the EU proposing to deal with this problem? This is why they're making it a big issue in the news. They want popular support for this. The European Union has drawn up plans for military attacks in Libya to try to curb the influx of migrants. Specifically, and here the baton's picked up by Britain, the British are drafting a UN Security Council resolution that would authorize a military mission, NATO mission, to hit vessels taking people across the Med. Now, they didn't phrase it like that. They're framing the issue to say that they're going to be hitting the ships carrying people fleeing Libya because they're being used, those poor people, by human traffickers to come to Europe. They're going to be big human trafficking. Awful, awful. How are they going to deal with it? They're going to blow the ships out of the water. Isn't that just... <laughs> could it be any more evil? It's compassionate foreign policy. I'm just speechless. I'm speechless that this is actually being touted. And and it's because there's ISIS. They're not even hiding it. They're just saying ISIS is amongst them. Occasionally that crops up, but... They don't even need to anymore. They don't even need to bother with it. Anyway, what about... Talking about chaos, what about the weather? Um, Tornado season started early in the US. Was it early? Yeah. It's a few it weeks. pretty devastating. It's just a few weeks wave after wave of them. Just recently, it just started maybe a week or two ago, the first real significant ones. And uh, that's early. And there was one, there's one just, uh, what was it, yesterday? Went through um, Oklahoma. Or, sorry, Texas. Multiple tornadoes ripped through Texas. There was a day last week when 51 touched down. Uh, in the plains, twelve in Oklahoma. I don't know. I, I'm 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 I must be getting enormously biased when it comes to U.S. tornadoes because I'm like, yeah, it always happens. Fifty-one tornadoes reported in the last week. In a week, I think I heard that that figure for one day. Um, what's what did stand out though? This is unheard of. Absolutely unheard of. You might get the odd one or two, but there was a tornado outbreak in northern Germany. Mm-hmm. Twelve tornadoes touched down. It's part of a storm. One yeah. of them actually hit Hamburg, and, and one person was killed, mm-hmm. and a whole slew of buildings were yeah. destroyed. Had the roofs ripped off them, cars were thrown around. That That is completely <clears throat> unheard of. Absolutely. At any time, it doesn't matter what the season is. For, for northern Germany, it's... Yeah. Uh, Totally unheard of. The other weather event that stands out, um, if you can call it, it's a bit of a pattern. Uh, Russia had barely any snow 
fourth winter. It was way below average. Mm-hmm. They say it was their warmest on record. About 10 days ago, it started snowing in Russia. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't stopped. Chelyabinsk. As far south as Chelyabinsk into Kazakhstan. Yeah. Uh, that's not normal. Nothing's normal these days. But on that point, I think it's time for a dose of real, objective normalcy in the form of a pop culture roundup from our old friend Relic. He's back this week to give us all the inside news. Take it away, Relic. Hello everyone, it's Relic here again, reporting from the winter wonderland shores of Upper Lake Canada. Now some folks are wondering where it is exactly that my little log cabin is located. Well, let's just say that my nearest neighbors, a, a jovial young fella named Santa Claus, and well... He's quite a way south of my current locale. So, let's see what kind of stories we have from the glitzy world of celebrity culture that have been appearing on my interchat browser this week. According to Reuters news agency, the family of R&B singer Marvin Gaye have won a successful $7.4 million plagiarism lawsuit against a couple of contemporary artists known as Farrell and Robin Thicke, whose 2014 chart-topic single, Blurred Lines, was judged as being a direct rip-off of Marvin's 1977 classic number one song, Gotta Give It Up. Robin Thicke is probably best known for infamously twerking with a a young lady named Miley Cyrus at the 2013 Video Music Awards. I accidentally tried twerking once when I had a seizure after drinking too much moonshine at a local barn dance. Ended up in a coma for three weeks. If only Miss Miley Cyrus had had such luck, we all might have been spared her notorious wrecking ball. Anyways, one of the accused plagiarizers, Robin Thicke, probably got his last name on account of the density of his skull bone. Whereas one can only guess that this feral person must have received his moniker from the fact that he was orphaned as a child and raised by wolves. Whatever the case may be, one can only hope that as the late great soul singer looks down on this whole mess from the great beyond, that Mr. Marvin Gaye now embodies his own last name and is feeling very, very happy. In other news, fans of flip-flop music star Canyon West have taken to attending his concerts with empty Ziploc bags and are capturing the air from his performances and then proceeding to sell the bags on eBay. In marketing parlance, 
A bag of hot air from a Canyon West show is known as an action figure. His wife, on the other hand, the lovely Kimberly Cardshane, is in the news again this week after she showed up at the Paris fashion show with platinum blonde dyed hair job, successfully resembling one of the Merovingian albino twins from The Matrix Reloaded. Speaking of Kim K, her family's reality show is starting a new season soon. It's called Keeping Up with the Card Shades, and if only someone could develop an app that would scrub all stories of this talentless celebrity bimbo from my newsfeed, well, that would be just awesome. Maybe they could call it Keeping the Card Shades Forever Trapped in a bottomless pit from which there's no escape. That'll fix him. It'll fix him good. I'd buy that for a dollar. I think they'd become millionaires. According to the UK's Daily Mail, Miss Cardashane is quoted as saying that she and her husband have sex 500 times a day. And apparently... A couple of those times are, are with each other. <laughs> but seriously, I don't mean to come across as a disbeliever, but 500 times a day seems a little, oh, I don't know, excessive. So, just for fun, let me grab my electronic abacus here and, and we'll do the math. It's 24 hours in a day, minus... Eight hours on average for sleeping, and a couple more hours for eating meals, and maybe a couple more hours for normal daily celebrity activities like giving mind-numbing interviews and taking nude selfies. Well, that leaves us with about 12 hours left over. So, at that rate, the Randy couple must be gauging in the act of carnal relations approximately Every 1.2 minutes. All I can say about that is, when the doctor told Canyon's mother that he was premature, I don't think they were talking about his birth weight. Now, you may not know that in one of these amorous encounters has resulted in the birth of the couple's first child, which they named North. Rumor has it, that the baby has already begun writing his first autobiography about life as a celebrity infant, simply titled North, by Northwest. And now for the last bit of news from the drama fest that is Canyon West. NME is reporting that the flip-flop singer was scheduled to be the headlining act at this year's legendary Glastonbury Music Festival. That is, until a petition with 120,000 signatures appeared from rabid festival fans demanding that the Canyon show be cancelled. Apparently, there's just not enough room on the festival grounds for both the audience and Canyon's ego. Well... That's it for now, kids. Until next time, it's Relic here, warming these old bones in front of a crackling fire and 
saying always remember to keep your feet on the ground and your eyes on the stars.